I think it's the first time in my career, and others uh, can confirm this who are in, in a similar position, that we are following the science and that all of a sudden the science has obviously become so inconvenient to, to the stakeholders of these uh, this campaigns. The spectrum of variants that is available right now will be sufficient, more than sufficient, to generate a super variant. Everywhere where we do this mass vaccination, the end point will be full resistance against the vaccine. You know, the criticism is that, yeah, Van den Bosch uh, wants to make propaganda for his own technology, etc. But interestingly enough, nobody else comes with an alternative. These people believe that they're doing the best thing to get business back to normal, but, but you're saying what they're actually doing is creating an environment that actually induces more variants of concern. People, it's easy, get your shot, get the jab, and, and you're just go going to be fine. They tend to believe this because it's more easy for them, it's more convenient. This other part, which is extremely annoying, and the fact checkers, for me, they, they are simply a, a bunch really of arrogant, illiterate weasels, I call them. There is only one force that can handle this, and this is really force of the people. But at the beginning, when all these things went through my head, I, I really had sleepless nights. I said, my God, I mean, what, what, what kind of world are we living in? I mean, I don't recognize this world anymore. I don't recognize this world anymore. I don't recognize this world anymore. Geert, fantastic to be able to talk to you again. Um, it was some months ago that we talked, and obviously at that time you were indicating grave concerns for variants that are produced as a result of selection pressure. And it was something of a, a doomsday prophecy. If we can just kick off from picking up from where we last talked, obviously we have not seen um, the rapidity of change that had been a key concern, but actually many elements. We, we have been transitioning from what is described as a pandemic to what you now describe as a pandemic of variants. So can you just sort of pick up um, where we are and as well as, as looking at your previous forecasts and what has actually come to pass so far? Mm. Okay, okay, Rob. Well, uh, what we are seeing right now, as you pointed out, is that uh, we are seeing that things continue to evolve. And what I mean by that is that we started out with, uh, I would say, a classical pandemic uh, where there was only like one strain involved. And that has, after the first 10 months of the pandemic, has uh, been evolving towards uh, more infectious variants emerging. And uh, so those uh, more infectious variants uh, have, of course, uh, been causing uh, surges, uh, waves uh, of uh, morbidity, mortality in, in, well, basically almost all over the world. But um, what we are seeing right now, and this is very much based on quite recent analysis of molecular uh, epidemiologists who are really studying the genes and how they evolve uh, over time of this virus, we are now increasingly seeing that uh, mutations are evolving towards an increased level of resistance to, to antibodies. So now, uh, what, is, what is difficult to understand, so the first, uh, first thing is, yes, the pandemic is still evolving. So we had uh, the pandemic of uh, the Wuhan virus, 
then we it transitioned into a pandemic of more infectious variants. And uh, according to what the molecular epidemiologists are um, describing right now, we are now in a phase of uh, further evolution towards uh, a pandemic of uh, anti antibody resistant variants. So uh, the, the thing is, this is obviously not easy to see because, uh, you know, in many countries, the cases are going down. Uh, there is less uh, mortality, less uh, morbidity. Uh, things uh, seem to be improving. And um, so that is something which is difficult to understand in a sense that uh, why is this that these variants are evolving and that we basically don't see the effect of this. And this can be easily explained. And uh, again, these are not my explanations. These are all uh, explanations and insights from genomic epidemiologists who are saying, well, look, if you have uh, an increased immune pressure in the population, you will see that variants that can resist antibodies, specifically against spike protein, will gain a competitive advantage. But when these variants are selected, at the very beginning, this comes with what they call a fitness cost. So there is a mutation that gets selected, but you cannot expect the variant that has that mutation to immediately outcompete the circulating variants, eh? so the variants that previously uh, circulated. So in other terms, it takes some time for this immune escape variant that is now increasingly resistant to antibodies uh, in the population, it takes some time for this variant to adapt to the population. And that adaptation is also, in its own right, a dynamic process in the sense that the more widespread the immune pressure, so this is to say the higher the vaccine coverage rate, for example, the more pressure will be exerted on the virus because basically there are just many more people that are exerting pressure on, on the virus. And so now everything depends on uh, how many more uh, mutations do we need to reach a status of complete resistance to the vaccines. So we know that one single mutation can, you know, can cause a resistance to several different uh, antibodies, also vaccinal antibodies, but also naturally induced antibodies. But epidemiologists expect that we will need a few additional mutations on top of the mutations that have already taken place. And every single mutation comes always with a fitness cost. And then the virus needs to cross the valley of fitness. They call this the valley of fitness. Uh, that is the valley where the uh, variant got already selected, but it still has relatively low fitness and it needs to adapt and that takes time. And this will be this process will be facilitated by a higher infectious pressure. Uh, uh, sorry, with a higher immune pressure in the population. So that is what we are seeing: the the, the current quiescence of the epidemic, where everything right now is uh, occurring under the water. I always compare this with the iceberg, mm. where we see mm. the small tip, which is very bright right now, which is which is great, which is 
you know, uh, the, the cases are going down, uh, mortality is decreasing, etc., etc. But the huge bulk of the iceberg, the dark part, is under the water, is still under the water, but it's tremendously evolving. And that is not what I'm saying. That is what really molecular epidemiologists are finding out that now there is a very strong evolution that is very much directed towards the S protein in terms of the mutations. And that this pressure is so strong that they, even within the S protein, they see convergent, convergent evolution towards the same uh, genetically, uh, the, the, the same genetic sites that are, of course, immunologically relevant because they have an immunological function. And that clearly illustrates that what is going on, it is not a neutral genetic drift, but it mm. is clear. It's, a, it's a selection. It is, it is a selection pressure. So we, we have, um, obviously, the things that people can see are the, the virulence, the potential to cause disease, the transmissibility. We also have, um, obviously, changes in the host environment because the, the host is, is changing as we see more and more people being targeted with the same um, antibody pressure, if you like. But the other factor is, of course, the environment. The, the, is it possible that, that also, I mean, certainly the initial part of the pandemic, it was fairly clear that there was an association between um, more temperate climates and environments. It was almost as if the, the, the virus did better in cooler, damper, um, winter type environments. And then, of course, we saw um, the development of the uh, Delta variant in, in India suddenly performing in, in much warmer uh, environments. So is there evidence that the environment that the um, virus seems to be happy to be dealing with um, is actually much more variable now? And is it also possible that the, on the other side of that, that the northern temperate um, you know, summer environments now are actually one of the reasons that we see a greater level of quiescence in terms of um, infection. Well, I mean, Rob, the problem right now is that there are so many confounders that, you know, so let's analyze the situation. This is an evolution. When you talk about evolution, you talk about a factor of time. A temporal factor is very important. A pandemic is an evolutionary uh, phenomenon. This is one thing, factor time. So it depends at what time in the pandemic are you looking, are you taking your, your snapshot? Then there is, of course, a pandemic is an interaction between the virus and the host. And we are intervening in that pandemic. So there is human intervention. So we have the virus, we have the host, and we have the human intervention. So on the just to answer your question, to what extent can you pull out one of these factors and say this has an influence? What I'm saying is that right now you cannot. On the part of the host, you have tremendous differences because uh, you know people are exposed in a different way. Their time of exposure is different. Some people are very vulnerable, as we know, have underlying diseases, others have not, etc. So pop populations can be very heterogeneous. Then on the part of the virus, uh, the First of all, it's very important what is the infectious pressure, for example. Um, how, so how many, how many active infections are there uh, right now? 
Then we are talking about variance. What variance are we talking about? If we are evaluating the effect of a certain factor, whether it's mass vaccination, whether it's temperature, etc., which variance are we talking about? And then we have the influence, of course, of the of the mass vaccination, and that depends on what are the the, the vaccine coverage rate. Uh, so what is the immune selection pressure that is uh, right now uh, present in a certain population? So you have okay. all these confounders, and then it's very, very difficult just to pull out one factor. That's also why I'm very skeptical when people say, for example, oh, you see, there is a clear difference between the non-vaccinated and the vaccinated in terms of breakthrough cases or, or whatever, because we are not necessarily comparing exactly the same people in exactly the, the same conditions, and there mm -hmm. are so many confounders. And that situation... So the, the, the other factor we have, of course, is also um, T-cell immunity from, from uh, naturally acquired infection. We have now a significant proportion of the population, very different in different parts of the world. Um, that is another confounder. Do you, do you think it's a significant... I mean, are, we, are, are there parts of the world where you believe some of the reduction in infection is result of background immunity from memory T-cells? No, I, I uh, well, first of all, don't forget that uh, what we are talking about, uh, the infectivity of the virus and the transmissibility is, uh, is, is almost like exclusively conditioned or determined by the spike protein, which is, uh, which is responsible for infection. Of course, if we talk about T-cell immunity, you could think about uh, protection, protection against uh, disease, etc. But to answer your question, in terms of what could be the impact of T-cell immunity on the, um, the evolution of the pandemic, I think there is a lot of confusion in a sense that people are now trying to, to make people believe that T-cell immunity, even in, in people who got vaccinated, is uh, a critical factor in not just protecting against disease, but also protecting against, uh, against variants. And that is, in fact, not the case, because remember, if you are vaccinated, there is no evidence whatsoever. No single company has demonstrated that any of these vaccines induce T-cell responses that are protective. Of course, they induce T-cell responses, but uh, who cares about T-cell responses if they are not, if the T-cell that you induce is not capable of eliminating a virus-infected cell, okay? Yeah. And, and even if a vaccine would do that, uh, because these are modern vaccines where we synthesize a, a certain protein uh, or, or, or several different peptides comprised within a, a protein, then you also have to realize that it is very, very difficult. Basically, we don't have any vaccine that does this currently, certainly not amongst the non-live vaccines, that induces a universally protective T-cell response. So that means a T-cell response that would be protective in all of the people in a population. And why is this? Because we know that recognition of T-cell epitopes is very much depending on the genetic background of the host, the famous MHC complexes, right? It's MHC plus one restricted. So to have an antigen that induces a protective T-cell response in all of the population, because uh, it, that 
it's 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 not present in the current vaccines and it's not easy to do because basically we don't have this type of t-cell vaccines uh, right now and if you want to have an impact on the pandemic there we are always talking population level right so on the other hand it's very clear that people who got naturally infected who got naturally infected they do have of course protective t-cell immunity because there's plenty of antigens that they have some of which in your body will induce a cytotoxic T-cell response. That will not be the same peptides that induce a cytotoxic T-cell response in my body, but we will cover a spectrum large enough that some of these epitopes will do this, right? And then you are protected. But this is once you have these antigens presented on the surface of the infected cell. So it is it's protecting you against disease, but it's not going to prevent you from being infected. Because that is conditioned. Just at that point, um, Geert, if you can just compare that with SARS one, um, because obviously that the, there's been a lot of work to suggest that the, I mean that very small wave. Um, compare the both the the, the viral and the host environment. Um, why why are we in such a different place with SARS two compared with SARS one? Well, one of the things is, of course, that we have uh, immediately implemented. This is my hypothesis based on uh, my immunological insights. But we have immediately reacted with uh, global implementation, in fact, of infection prevention measures over a long period of time. So we, we have been seeing the, the first variants uh, before the mass vaccination even started, right? They were more infectious, and this was about 10 months after worldwide implementation of uh, selection prevention measures. We did not have this with SARS. We, there were locally, you know, it, it was ne never a real pandemic in a sense that, uh, well, it, 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 it spread to, I don't know, uh, 10, 15 countries, uh, but not worldwide. So that is one thing, the human intervention, which has been uh, massively implemented. And second, and this is also a very contentious uh, topic, uh, but, but in many publications, you will find that the main reason why SARS-2 is so different from uh, SARS-CoV-1 is that uh, there is a very peculiar thing about uh, SARS-CoV-2, which is that the virus can be shed by asymptomatically infected people. And that is something which is very, very special. SARS-1, uh, for example, by the time you start spreading virus at a significant, in significant concentration, you already have clear signs, clinical signs and symptoms. So it's much easier, of course, to isolate these people, to quarantine these people, etc. We know that even if it is in low quantities, that doesn't matter. But that asymptomatically, people who got asymptomatically infected with SARS-CoV-2 or who are pre-symptomatic can already shed the virus. So here you have a kind of a reservoir of people, namely asymptomatically infected people. And I'm not saying that they shed in, in huge quantities, but they do shed in an asymptomatic way. And that makes it, of course, very, very difficult to dampen the infectious pressure because you're not going to isolate or quarantine these people unless you happen to identify them as being a contact of somebody uh, who got uh, hospitalized or uh, who really got a disease, right? 
but the majority but, so of them, uh, yeah. Yeah, so in, in your view, had if you look at the fact that there is asymptomatic shedding, if there hadn't been the global non-pharmaceutical measures, social isolation, distancing, etc., and mass vaccination, how different do you think the current situation would be? Do you think we would have been out the other side by now? Or do you think there are unique features about this virus that would say that, that it would still present a problem? Well, my clear opinion is that uh, because, the, in fact, Rob, the question comes down, your question comes down to asking me, would we have had natural uh, herd immunity? Would we? Would to you know, agree. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So uh, the answer is um, what would have happened is that, of course, vulnerable people would have gotten severe disease. But again, we are not going to talk about this today, I guess. But as you know, there is some debate ongoing as to how you can intervene at an early stage, uh, potentially with drugs, etc. And then you have the people who are naturally protected, all the young people and, and all people basically in good, in good health, right? And then you have, of course, a minority that get a disease. But as I was saying, people who get a disease will acquire natural uh, will acquire immunity, acquired immunity, and uh, the, the, their immune system will be primed. So that is, that is uh, so you have basically herd immunity based on uh, the majority of people in the population who have uh, natural immunity and who are protected, uh, youngsters and, and healthy people, and then those who have experienced the disease, contracted the disease, but recovered from the disease, and have uh, long-lived uh, immunity. So what is happening? So 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 yes, you would you would have ended up with an endemic situation, but you would not have prevented asymptomatically infected people from still spreading the virus. Why am I saying this? Because a large amount of people who are asymptomatically infected, they will develop antibodies but uh, they have no memory B cells. At least so far, there has been no demonstration that they have memory B cells, so their antibodies are not completely functional. They are short-lived and not long-lived. So these people don't contribute to this herd immunity, so to say, and, and they are asymptomatically infected, so they can still continue spreading the virus. So what you would see is an endemic situation, but where from time to time, you have a flare-up when, for example, this immunity uh, weakens in, in uh, the acquired immunity weakens in some people, etc. So it would not be there would not be any need to introduce the virus from outside because it would be permanently be circulating. And it's very interesting to think about this. This becomes almost philosophical, right? It becomes almost philosophical. But what it tells me is that. In that situation, the population can deal with this, provided, provided you avoid really mass gatherings of healthy people, because there, although these people who are asymptomatically infected, there is no evidence whatsoever that they spread or that they um, uh, excrete uh, huge quantities of virus, probably very low quantities and for a short period of time. But you can imagine, if you put these people together uh, you know, in huge amounts, mass gatherings, and repeatedly, you do this repeatedly, all the summer festivals we have here, for example, in Belgium, right? 
then the infectious pressure can start to mount and then it can become some people who under normal infectious pressure are not vulnerable can now become susceptible due to the increased infectious pressure that is taking place. So yes, we, I think we would have had herd immunity, but with one caveat that we, in order to really maintain this herd immunity and prevent uh, large outbreaks, I think uh, it would have required a certain change in our lifestyle, not, not masks or, or, or this type of things, but mass gatherings, overcrowding, this type of things. As, as we see, basically, you know, my background is veterinary medicine. That's also where you need to be extremely careful if you have livestock. If you're breeding livestock, you know, huge, this huge uh, density of animals on a very small surface, there you need to be very, very careful. And, and usually these this animals are slaughtered like poultry after a few weeks and, and pigs after a few months. So, but, but you have to, and, and then everything is very thoroughly disinfected. So we know that these mass gatherings, this crowding, is is not a good thing. Well, speaking of mass gatherings, well, two things. First of all, Epstein Barr virus um, is an example of a virus that is circulating all the time. Probably more than fifty percent of people have it, and yet um, what we see it's only people who lose an underlying resilience, immune resilience, who start to see because it's it's probably the virus that's most closely associated with chronic fatigue syndrome. We now have a a virus where and we have a new name for a new condition called long covid that is in effect um a post viral syndrome that is caused by depression but um this weekend in in london there were probably close on a million people gathering um a very large proportion of those uh, were unvaccinated i have to admit to having been part of that gathering um you know, what's fascinating is that the, the, the media, I think as far as the media reported so far, the largest number I've seen is tens of thousands. I mean, there were hundreds of thousands. Um, you might expect um, a significant um, spike to emerge from a gathering of that kind of scale. Do you think we will see spikes with demonstrations on that scale happening? Well, it definitely uh, what I can say or what I would say is that at this point in time where we where the variants are evolving, any increase in infectious pressure is going to promote the further evolution of variants. And why I'm saying this? Well, we know that uh, you know, in order to have, for example, a triple variant that uh, infects people, I mean, you need, I would say, many, many viral particles in order to be able to select a triple variant. So if you now are talking about additional mutations, in order to be able to select the mutation first in, in, in single people, you need to have enough viral particles, at least before you can start selection, at least it needs to be part of the, of the viral particles that is infecting that, that, that person. The higher the infectious pressure, the higher the likelihood that you will end up with, with triple and quadruple uh, mutations that then can be selected because a lot of these people have been vaccinated, for example, and are mounting immune pressure. Well, I think this is what's unusual about these kind of gatherings. You'll, you'll find that the vast majority of people who are demonstrating actually have not been vaccinated. So while there may be some infection pressure, there won't be pressure from partially 
neutralizing antibodies, which is which is the worst kind of selection pressure. Yeah. So I, I mean, that in my view, that's why I, I think we probably won't see evidence of a spike from that kind of gathering. But that's yeah. So so look. It, there is one thing important, Rob. I I uh, I memorize this as follows: that and and I think what I'm going to say is controversial, but nevertheless, I'm pretty much convinced. We're okay with that. We're speaking naturally. Yeah. yeah. And what I uh, bear in mind all the time is that the risk and now the risk. What is now the risk? The risk of now the variance. So every person that could potentially be part of that breeding ground for variants you know, is uh, something you need to keep in mind or, or uh, some, uh, somebody you need to pay attention to. And so this group of people that are breeding the variants, according to my humble opinion, are asymptomatically infected people. So asymptomatically infected people are now, and I will come back to your remark that these people are not vaccinated majority, but the people who are now healthy and so asymptomatic and could when they get infected and exposed, they will be asymptomatically infected or on one hand side vaccinees because the vast majority is still is still not susceptible to disease when they're vaccinated. We hear about breakthroughs, etc. But the vast majority is still protected against disease. Right? So and as I explained already, those are the guys who are, of course, uh, putting most pressure on the virus because they are mounting antibody responses, etc. So that, that is the ideal breeding ground for uh, an, an immune escape variant that can escape those antibodies, because on that background, it will have a competitive advantage compared to the previously circulating strains. But then, and now back to, to your comment, then there are still the, the non-vaccinated, the non-vaccinated, asymptomatically infected people. And why are they susceptible? Well, I explained this several different times. This is really my mantra, right? That when the infectious pressure increases, as I just said, these people develop antibodies, but they are long, they are short-lived. Okay. But these antibodies are capable of suppressing the innate antibodies. And that is all always why Compet I nobody, yeah. nobody, nobody, literally nobody can explain why during a natural pandemic. We have seen it right now. We have seen it in 1918 with the flu pandemic. Why all of a sudden does this pandemic completely shift to the younger population? I mean, these people had their innate immunity. They were perfectly fine. They were not vulnerable. They were just not even noticing that they got infected. And then all of a sudden, three months later, bam, it's primarily younger people who get infected. And that can only be explained unless anybody else has an explanation that at a certain point when the pandemic you know, grows and the infectious pressure becomes higher and higher, the likelihood now that somebody gets re-exposed to that virus while having his innate antibodies suppressed by the short-lived spike-specific antibodies that are induced or that have been induced by the first infection will increase. And so to respond to, to, to answer your question, well, uh, we can certainly not rule out that a number of people in these mass gatherings are still having natural, uh, you know, well, naturally acquired antibodies, but that are short-lived, that will disappear uh, and that have no memory, but that are still 
present in sufficient quantity to suppress their innate antibodies. And that makes them all of a sudden vulnerable, whereas previously they were not vulnerable. So even in that case, even in that case, you see that mass gatherings is not a good thing if you want to avoid, uh, yeah. Fascinating. Uh, so will it really result in, in, in a huge surge, etc.? Um, I don't know. As I was saying, as I was saying, there are right now so many confounders. And unless, unless we, we arrive at a very clear cut situation, like, for example, full resistance to the vaccines, we will, you know, we will not see, you know, every, every assessment will be contentious and, and will be very much influenced by, by all kinds of confounders. But, but two, but, two, two things there. We, we see more and more companies and institutions saying they are going to force, you know, visitors or employees to be fully vaccinated before they can come back to work or visit the theatre or um, sports ground. Um, obviously, what they're then doing is then putting those people in much closer proximity. So that that could be a, a pretty devastating comb combination. I mean, the, these people believe that they're doing the best thing to get business back to normal. But but you're saying what they're actually doing is creating an environment that actually induces more variants of concern. Well, you know, the more we vaccinate people, as I was just saying, and I mean, this is not my theory. This is how molecular epidemiologists, uh, uh, is, is what they conclude. If you see an evolutionary um, or, or you see evolution of mutations as a function of immune pressure, and that is what clearly the epidemiologists are, are seeing. And, and even if maybe they don't talk about mass vaccination, they are currently saying that the evolution of the virus is clearly so much host dependent, dependent on the host environment and more specifically dependent on the immune pressure that is mounted against the very spike protein. I'm not saying there is no other mutation selected, but the majority of the naturally selected mutations are within the spike protein and they are convergent. So independently, different countries or the different populations, independently, they converge towards the same uh, immunologically relevant uh, genes within the spike protein. So now so, you can- so so, so let's just talk boosters for a minute. So obviously, in order to deal with vaccine breakthrough and because uh, the vaccines have been built on computer generated models of the original um, 2020, you know, March 2020 variant, um, when you see the, the, the boosters development that, that, that try and get around the uh, vaccine resistance issues, Presumably, that just applies a whole new level of selection pressure on the RBD area of the spike protein. Is that right? Yeah, well, uh, well. F first of all, what I was saying is that, okay, so uh, it's clearly dependent on the immune pressure, what is going on, the evolution that is going on. So the more you vaccinate, of course, the more you are going to extend uh, this breeding ground that is exerting immune pressure. So when you now come with um, an updated vaccine, so to say, what is going to happen, right? 
So what is going to happen? Well, first of all, and, and that is, again, these are not my words, because I'm so disappointed that you find all these things in the literature published mm -hmm. by world-class epidemiologists who then got or, 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 or see or, or clearly predicting where this is going, but are not, not uh, voicing the, the, their concerns or, or what you're seeing. Because what you're clearly saying is that the... The evolutionary, sorry for using these complex words, but the evolutionary plasticity, the evolutionary versatility of the spike protein is huge. We think this is just like a point mutation, etc. No, there is also like we call this with a complex word, epistatic interaction, where you have two or three mutations. And when you come with another mutation, well, the impact of that mutation will very well depend on the background of the pre-established mutations, etc. So this can go in all kinds of different ways. The, vers the evolutionary versatility is huge, whereas the number of epitopes that we can select to build an immune response against is very narrow, is very limited. So we build an immune response against a, a clearly limited number of epitopes, all within S protein. Whereas the evolutionary plasticity and the, um, the, 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 the capacity, the evolutionary capacity of this S epitope is just huge. So that is one thing. What makes it already easy for the virus to escape to whatever additional antigen or whatever additional variation you may incorporate in the vaccine. But more importantly, when you will now vaccinate these people with this new variant or an adapted uh, variant uh, spike protein is that by and this is again uh, a notion uh, you know from the immunology textbook uh, there is something like antigenic sin and antigenic sin means that if you got primed with a certain antigen and then after that you get exposed to a similar antigen, it doesn't need to be the same one, that you will still recall the initial, the initial immune response that was established by your first vaccination. So this, in other words, this is to say that you will immediately recall in all these people that you vaccinate with the updated uh, or the, the second generation vaccine, you will immediately give them a tremendous boost of all you know the previous antibodies so all of a sudden you will increase the the selection the immune selection pressure because some people had already waning antibody titers etc now all of a sudden you boost them to to a very high level that is one then the other thing again not my words what the epidemiologists are extremely concerned about is that Right now, we have, nobody knows, hundreds of variants. Of course, we all, all only know about variants of concern and very problematic variants and, 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 and interesting variants. But there is so many variants, nobody knows. And uh, what the epidemiologists are saying, now the likelihood that within one of the, and the same person, these variants start to recombine is extremely high. Why? Because the likelihood of a co-infection of one and the same person with two or more variants becomes real, becomes real because it's so, so many variants circulating. And then that means when you have all these 
recombinations, etc., you will, you know, not only enhance uh, phenotypic uh, features like, uh, for example, uh, resistance to antibodies, but it could as well be enhanced virulence, for example, or what I am very much concerned about, probably biased by my veterinary background, is that we will again cross the species barriers and that we may, that those viruses, because, you know, the, the, the protein that is responsible for crossing species barriers is the spike protein. So if that happens, then we could have, again, reservoirs in our poultry, livestock, pigs, etc., that are basically an, a, an asymptomatic reservoir uh, from which, you know, you could have recurrent infections of the human population. So then just come with, you know, what is currently, and at the same time, of course, the variants will continue to evolve. By the time, so today they select a new vaccine, the update, by the time it gets injected, I mean, the, the evolution right now is like exponential. That is what the epidemiologists are saying. And the combination of those variants is like crazy. And, and genomic monitoring is incredibly variable depending on what part of the world in the UK happens to have some of the highest. In terms of um, particular variants or sublineages of variants, such as the, the AY1 um, variant or, or lineage of the sublineage of the uh, Delta variant in India is now making it into the newspapers is are there can you just give us a a view of where you think there are signals of variants of particular concern that are a result of um, selection pressure well i mean uh rob the i you know you remember maybe i i send it to you the article that i wrote right and i would i would really advise people to just read the the first two or the first three references from the literature that i cited mm. uh, one or two the, the first the first one because there it is full it's full of proof that the variants are currently continuously evolving towards under selection immune selection pressure mm. or and selection pressure that is clearly spike directed Right. And that they are evolving towards, you know, increasing resistance to specific antibodies. So to be open with you, I don't even follow all this, all this, this talk about the variants, etc. Because I know one thing is that regardless of which variant is circulating, regardless of the country, you know, everywhere where we do this mass vaccination, right, the end point, the end point will be full resistance against the vaccine because these things are evolving. And the epidemiologists who are not even talking about mass vaccination, they say that the spectrum of variants that is available right now uh, will be sufficient, more than sufficient to generate, again, this is not my word, to generate a super variant, a super variant. And the question is not whether this will happen, when this will happen exactly. But the question will be, what will be the phenotypic characteristics of this variant? Will it be simply, full, well, simply, this is already a catastrophe in its own right, full resistance against vaccines? Or will it also be crossing of species barriers, increased virulence, 
enhanced mutation rate for further phenotypic characteristics. That is what they are saying. And these are not my words, right? I, I'm just putting the vaccine context on top of this because what they are saying in, time, in, term, in terms of immune pressure is that, well, this immune pressure could result you know, from people who are chronically infected and uh, they have not sufficient immunity, so they cannot really control uh, the virus and the virus can still replicate on a background of suboptimal immunity. But this would require, you, can, you could select a virus like this, uh, an immune escape virus, but this is not sufficient. You also need to adapt it to the population. This requires that there are multiple people who are in a such situation with suboptimal immunity. No, I mean, we, we, we don't have chronically uh, infected people, you know, with, 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 with SARS-CoV-2 all over the place. Mm -hmm. So it's much more likely that the immune pressure uh, comes indeed from the mass vaccination, especially since we have a panoply of conditions when you're vaccinated, when you have, where you have suboptimal immunity. People who got their first shot, people who are mounting, uh, for example, their antibodies, uh, etc. So, so if we, if we stop vaccinating now, imagine you, you've, you've been made head of the WHO. The WHO were going to listen to everything you were saying. We stopped vaccinating. We um, supported early treatment using ivermectin and other drugs and nutrients that can deal with severe disease. What would be the trajectory? What, where would we go from there? Do you think it would peter out and we'd just move into an endemic we would reduce the number of variants of concern being produced and we would move back to an endemic situation which would just be incorporated into the circulating viruses. So my position there, Robert, has been very clear uh, almost right from, from start. What changed is that I always thought uh, it's still useful uh, to not uh, continue mass vaccination at this point, but in terms of the epidemiological consequences. I'm not talking about any side effects or the dilemma of vaccinating youngsters and children with regard to, you know, uh, lack of uh, documentation or, or information on safety, etc. I'm not talking about this. I'm purely talking about the epidemiological consequences. It would not help anymore. It could possibly delay maybe the um, the emergence of this or this wide worldwide propagation of uh, vaccine resistant strains by a few months by a few weeks but that is what the epidemiologists are saying we, we are going to have this this is going to occur right so if we continue mass vaccination of course we put more and more and more uh, uh, immune pressure it it, it may uh, speed up the process but um, finally the, the consequences are going to, to be the same and if you see with all the uh, combinatorial events of recombination and of the plasticity of the additional mutations as a function of the already established mutations and all these type of things, uh, it, it, it is going to delay maybe just for, for a few weeks or a few months. With regard to treatment, uh, I do think that if you would treat people with, well, First of all, there is two things you could do, which is the uh, the prophylaxis, the chemoprophylaxis with ivermectin, right? Mm -hmm. I don't think this is a very good thing to do. Um, you could do this to dramatically diminish the infectious pressure, but in terms of immunity, it's not really going to help because you will, this antiviral will destroy the virus 
before the immune system has recognized the components of the virus. So it will not really, I think, contribute to, to immunity unless, and this is interesting, um, unless you use it as an early treatment. So that means by the time people start to develop symptoms, you then treat with ivermectin. You will prevent the infection and the disease from occurring, but your immune system will have seen the pathogen and will mount an immune response uh, against, against uh, S protein. You don't care because there is resistance, but it will also induce protective T cell responses. And that is important. And that is a treatment, again, my veterinary background, that is very well known. And it is called infection treatment um, protocol. And for some parasitic diseases, for example, schistosomiasis uh, and, uh, for example, malaria. Uh, and, but I know it essentially from the veterinary side. Um, uh, large her herds of, of cattle, for example, they have been infected with the parasite. And by the time, at the time they started to develop symptoms, there was a treatment that really was killing the parasite. And that, what, by doing this, long-lived immunity against the parasite was induced, and even across several different species of the parasite, right? So very, very interesting. And I think the same thing may, might be possible if you don't do the prophylactic, uh, you know, chemoprophylaxis, but you really treat people by the time they get the uh, infection. Immune, immune, immune system yeah. recognition yeah. has already occurred. But, yeah. But, but uh, Robert, uh, this is something I absolutely need to add to this. This would protect people against the disease because they would, you would prime protective T cells, but it would not protect against spread of the infection. Right. Yeah. So you will not have the classical herd immunity yeah. where your, your people, they got protective immunity for themselves to protect them from disease, but they are not going to protect others because there is antibodies, there is resistance of the virus against the S antibodies, and hence the virus can still spread and can still infect people who are not, you know, have, have, uh, have no immunity. You see yeah, what I'm saying? So the only way out of this, if you really want to eradicate this thing, Huh? You need a vaccine, and that's also what what the epidemiolo epidemiologists are saying. I mean, I'm 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 citing this huh? literally. This is from a publication. It's a citation. In this context, vaccines that do not provide sterilizing immunity, in parentheses, and therefore continue to permit transmission, will lead to the buildup of large standing populations of virus, greatly increasing the risk of immune escape. Yeah. Oh. No, absolutely. The cat, the cat is properly out of the bag. Uh, in terms of the yeah. mass vaccination with the current spike protein-based vaccines, um, you, you would you would imagine that that by now the problem of the variants of concern would be recognised by governments, and they'd be rethinking mass vaccination strategies. In reality, the opposite seems to be the case. The other lever. Um, and it certainly did work with um, with uh, the swine flu pandemic. Um, is concerns about the adverse reactions, uh, and of course we had um, something like fifty eight mortalities, um, and and then it was only much later that the narcolepsy problem was was 
was noted, but but the the mortality associated with the vaccine was enough to to call a stop to it. The risk benefit equation at the moment, um, you know, we still have governments going out there calling the vaccine safe and effective. Um, you know, can you just talk to us what you think of the safety, the use of the safety claim, because it's the safety claim that is driving ever larger number of people. Um, we see many countries in the world, somewhere between 30 to 60% plus of the population have received vaccines, and we're still seeing huge pressure, huge coercion to have more and more, because they are told by health authorities that these vaccines are safe. What is your view on the use of the safety claim around these vaccines with the current, I mean, we, we know that there's a huge degree of underreporting as well, but what is your, your view on, on the, um, if you like, the ethics and the scientific correctness of the safety claim around these vaccines? Yeah. Well, Rob, I have, uh, of course, always been dealing from the very beginning, and I'm still doing that because I want to, to stick to really my field of expertise, right? And I've been dealing with the safety and with the effectiveness at the population level. At the population level, you call it effectiveness, not efficacy. Because efficacy is a clinical study under very precise conditions that are completely irrelevant for the pandemic we are in right now, right? So at the population level, you talk about the effectiveness. So what I'm saying here, first of all, and then I will come back to the individual safety. Because there is really these two things. Everybody agrees. We are talking about the pandemic. This is a global phenomenon, right? Nevertheless, everybody, and I fully understand this, of course, is concerned about is individual safety and the individual efficacy of the vaccine. But um, from a global viewpoint, if you see that you are driving this virus to, you know, to, to, to immune escape, to completely escape uh, the, uh, the, the vaccine, that is, of course, a huge issue because that means that all the people who got uh, vaccinated will no longer, in fact, be protected unless, of course, unless they got previously infected by the virus before they got vaccinated. Because I was telling you, then they have primed their protective T-cell responses. But if not, first of all, they have antibodies that are resistant to the, uh, they have, um, the, yeah, they have antibodies that uh, the, can no longer neutralize the virus. And this is the resistance. And second, these antibodies will still bind strongly enough to the spike protein to prevent natural innate antibodies from binding because these innate antibodies, I've repeated this on multiple occasions, have a completely different binding mechanism and their affinity for the spike protein is much less than the affinity of uh, vaccinal or naturally acquired uh, antibodies. So they are basically left without anything, which is, which is a huge problem. If you compare this to individual safety, I mean, this is like a completely different, uh, different dimension. On the other hand, I must admit that the argument of indiv individual safety is, is to some extent easier to handle. Because even though there is a lot of data obviously hidden and not everything is reported, and I don't know what's happening with all this data, but it's, it's quite, let's say, suspicious 
and it's all but transparent. That's the least we can say. But at least it's recording of data and according to certain criteria. And uh, this is done by professional uh, people, etc. I mean, also those who are registering uh, and encoding this, uh, these adverse events. And this is something which is easily understandable by the population, by people. I'm going to get this kind of site? No way. I'm going to have a clothing of thrombosis, etc. No way I'm going to do this. This may have an impact on infertility. or the, uh, so, so this is a clear message uh, to, to, to the people. So in that regard, I think it is important because it all adds up to the one thing the one sentence that one should use to summarize the whole thing, which is that this is one big experiment, right? This is one big experiment. The, 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 the things I'm taking a deep dive in are much more difficult to explain to people. As I was saying, uh, this is about forecasting. This is, uh, it's easy afterwards to say, see, eh? I, I told you there will be a, a peak and this and this, and then to say, well, you, you see the data? This happened, yeah. What we need to do is to prevent things. So some people need, based on their best insights and knowledge, to do a forecast. But then as these things are evolving, and I told you about the confounders and how you know this thing is now increase, becoming increasingly complex, this is not readily accessible to laymen, this, this discussion. And I've been struggling with this all along, of course. The, the effect of the safety, individual safety, well, I, I, I think, yeah, you know, without having a, a clear-cut opinion on this, I, when I hear this, and the people who are working on this, I mean, they can consider me as a, as a jerk, but, you know, many of these people, uh, these are highly qualified uh, doctors, uh, specialists, uh, they put their careers on the line, I mean, these, uh, these people have a high credibility. So if I hear these reportings, I mean, I'm, of course, extremely concerned, extremely concerned. And um, yeah, I hope, I hope, of course, that this will ring a bell with people, because the problem is, even if you have like an incidence of one in 10,000, which is, you know, for a medical doctor or even for a vaccinologist, unacceptable, is unprecedented. That means that the likelihood that somebody like you and me will have Somebody, you know, amongst their relatives or friends that happen to have this kind of side effect is still pretty much remote, right? And that is, you know, it, it, it will be, yeah, it, it takes a lot of time and energy to raise the awareness, but the same applies for the early treatment. It's so easy to understand for people that if you're sick, you, you should get the treatment. But if you tell people there is no treatment, okay, they say, well, there is no treatment. But if now all of a sudden you tell them there is a treatment, again, highly qualified doctors who do have thousands of data where, and, and even peer-reviewed journals where they have proven that they can prevent 85% of the people uh, getting ill to, to, you know, to have to go to the hospital, for example. These are clear, clear data. I think this is rather the way how we are going uh, to make people aware what I need to say is that the impact of all this is certainly of the uh, of the individual side effects is that's my fear is 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 you know a dimension lower than what I'm talking about in terms of the impact really on public health and on 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 the population as a whole. But the early treatment is very interesting because it combines both. As I told you, infection and treatment. You do the early treatment, it will it will enable people to build some immunity, long lived 
at least to be protected against the disease. It will, of course, dramatically diminish the infectious pressure because you will prevent people from really getting uh, very ill, etc. So, so this is something I, I'm completely be behind this. I completely support this because this is such a nice compromise where drugs and biologicals meet each other to really address uh, a global crisis, right? A global health crisis. The, the, the different dimension that we have to, of course, deal with is the fact that um, the primary mechanisms of communication are very distorted, like never before. So we have the mainstream media still pushing, obviously, the vaccination and the safety of vaccines message. We have um, now the social media platforms um, removing posts from very qualified and experienced doctors that talk about any kind of early treatment, but especially ivermectin treatment. Um, anything that is linked to vitamin D for prevention is, is being removed. So it's, a, it's an incredibly distorted environment. And I think the, the other um, thing that the public is not being told about is the, the extraordinary uncertainty of the scientific situation we, we face. So here, if we can just sort of summarize, um, um, and if I can perhaps um, try and clarify some of the key points that you are saying, you, you're suggesting we are in the midst of um, a silent phase of what could become um, a catastrophe, that the catastrophe you spoke about several months ago it is now a catastrophe linked to a pandemic of um, variants of concern. Um, and, and that could become very ugly if we develop supermutations. You're also saying that um, in order to deal with that, we should stop mass vaccination. Um, it is very difficult to find the levers. I, I, I think probably human interest being what it is, it may well be that the increased recognition of the scale of of side effects may be one of the factors that, that, that deals with that. Um, another thing you're saying is, is that we should still bear in mind certain elements of non-pharmaceutical intervention, such as trying to reduce mass vaccination, mass uh, gatherings for the time being. Um, and, and I think the, the other element is you think that, that vaccine technology should be moving down a completely different path. Um, so you've talked about all these other things. Is, is that a fair summation? And could you just perhaps give us an indication of, of where you think the, the ultimate solution lies? You, you're, you're a vaccinologist. You, um, you know, still very much believe that vaccination is at, is at the heart of this. But what should be happening in terms of the technology platforms we should be using? Yeah. Well, first of all, Rob, let me tell you that, um, and I, I need to stress this because it's so important that people realize that I'm not at all in into sensation, and and you know, and I've never been on social media before, so I, I, I hate. In fact, I hate the message I'm conveying, um, you know, myself, I, I hate this message. But um, I think it's the first time in my career, and others uh, can confirm this, who are in, in a similar position, that we are following the science, and that all of a sudden, the science has obviously become so inconvenient to, you know, 
to, to, to the stakeholders of this, uh, these campaigns. Because if you follow really the science and you expose yourself to all kinds of criticism, and I can tell you I'm still uh, answering hundreds of questions a day from all kinds of different people, experts, non-experts, etc. But at the end of the day, I think we need to be very realistic. And uh, I hope this will a little bit mitigate my message. I also spoke to my, uh, to, to my children, to, to relatives, etc to um you know to 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 calm down a little bit the uh, anxiety and 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 all the issues and the questions around the current crisis because what i know for sure is that this mass vaccination is not going to stop anytime soon i told you already in the past i'm not naive uh but um uh, this uh concern should be heard uh, but the alliance is uh, is so strong and uh, they are not going to back up that 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 is certain. I think what will come, whether people try to um, you know to prevent this or whether to, they they put obstacles in in our way, etc., uh, is the broad spectrum antivirals. Whether it's ivermectin or uh, hydroxychloroquine or or maybe another antiviral, broad you know they will be produced. People will use them because people will get ill will get sick even if people don't believe me i mean uh, again they should read these papers that i have attached to these references where these molecular epidemiolo epidemiologists are saying that this is going to lead to new surges and they are they, they are way more concerned about those variants that are developing like now uh, than all the others that we had before right so it's 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 not just so let's be realistic mass vaccination it will continue. I mean, it's not a good. But if we can install this treatment, this early treatment, which is so damn cheap, and if, uh, you know, first of all, we can have this supported by a number of nutraceuticals and vitamins. I mean, there is enough, enough proof of vitamin C, vitamin D, uh, and, uh, of course, a healthy lifestyle and all these things. And, and there's also the, the zinc sulfate or gluconate uh, that, uh, tablets that you can take. Uh, there, there is a lot of evidence, even of, uh, you know, highly skilled uh, doctors uh, who do not usually, uh, you know, tend to adhere to, to, to things that are not typically like uh, drugs. Uh, everybody says it's so important that you keep, um, yeah, you take very good care of your innate immune system. So that together with the ivermectin, and then when it becomes a little bit more uh, complicated and you uh, have this kind of inflammatory clinical signs that are, let's say, um, uh, kind of like announcing that a cytokine storm may come, uh, there are also treatments uh, that have been very well established. I think people will no longer allow that their relatives uh, and, and, and friends uh, die Whereas there is an increasing awareness that there is a treatment. So that in one way or the other, I believe the, the push will be so strong that th this thing will happen. And so that means, nevertheless, that when you get ill, you know, people will have and should have access uh, and, and nobody will be, will be able to, uh, to, 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 to prevent this. I think uh, this, the, the, this will come. And, but the mass vaccination will continue. And of course, we will not, with this situation, have herd immunity. But if we can, if we can prevent people from getting the disease, especially early treatment, also protect them against future disease, 
And in the meantime, for God's sake, because there is other pandemics that may come, we need to develop more universal vaccines. We need to develop vaccines that are capable at an early stage of infection to just kill and, and, and eliminate the infected cell, right? And uh, that is where I'm coming back to the idea of BNK cells. But, you know, the criticism is that, yeah, Vandenbosch uh, wants to defend or uh, make propaganda for his own technology, etc. But interestingly enough, nobody else comes with an alternative, right? Or, or, or another idea. And, you know, all these fact checkers, you respond because that takes an awful amount of time because this is the other the other part of the awareness, you have the awareness people, making people aware what's out there, what is traceable information. Uh, very, very difficult because if it's not on TV and they don't see this on their usual, uh, the, the media they are familiar with, they, uh, they are kind of like, you know, uh, think it, it's suspicious. But then there is this, this other part, which is extremely annoying, and the fact checkers. You know, I, I don't feel offended personally any longer by those guys. I, uh, you know, for me, there's simply a, a bunch really of uh, arrogant, illiterate uh, weasels, I call them, but uh, they can do a lot of harm because, you know, people, they all, oh, what, what, uh, what this guy is saying, eh, because typically people like me and others, they, what they are saying is, guys, this is a complex situation. It's not that easy that you could just get a shot and forget about it. And you can, again, you know, uh, invite everybody for your barbecue and you can travel and go to the restaurant and, and etc. It's not that easy. That is what we are saying. And then if they all of a sudden hear about a fact checker that says, yeah, what this guy is saying, this is nonsense. Forget about it, people. It's easy. Get your shot, get the jab, and, and you're just go going to be fine. They tend to believe this because it's more easy for them. It's more convenient. And that is the reason why I keep, I keep, uh, you know, reacting to those comments. Uh, you know, thanks God, uh, this has now tremendously diminished because there were even experts who thought, you know, they have to play the role of a fact checker. And I've responded multiple times purely with science, purely with science. And never, ever, I'm very honest with you, never, ever I heard back from them. Right. So, I mean, people should come with alternatives and think a little bit outside of the box and not be paralyzed by all these dogmas and mantras. And, you know, and, and uh, from the very beginning, I have been I have been advocating for an open discussion. Yes, let's criticize each other in a constructive way and let's fine tune things. Uh, all that's hel that helps. Let's challenge each, each other. But the way it's handled right now uh, well, it's, it's simply, you know, science is inconvenient. And I know that, uh, you know, these stakeholders, they will not back off. So we will have it's to co deal. Complete conflation of, of science and politics, unfortunately. Um, in, in terms of the, and, and we, we need to finish now, but, but obviously we, we have a political um, challenge that is all of the solutions that, that really are demonstrating incredible effectiveness for early treatment, ivermectin, vitamin C, vitamin D, zinc, etc., all of them are unpatented. The idea of um, the stakeholders saying, do you know what, we were, you know, supporting the wrong horse, now we need to support unpatented, that also could be um, seen as fairly unrealistic. I think um, we, we probably share a view that the pressure there will come from the grassroots. It'll be a bottom-up pressure, not a top-down yeah. pressure. 
And I think I think that's yeah, that's already beginning to happen. And and we've we've actually seen countless stories of individuals who saved the lives of their parents because they've encouraged either through the courts or because they meet a, a sensible doctor along the way in an ITU, for example, who says, "Okay, I'm prepared to prescribe the risk." Um, to, to prescribe yeah. ivermectin or, or, or vitamin D, vitamin C, etc. Yeah. So we, th this has to be a grassroots sort of people pressure. Situation. That is so true. That, that is so true what you're saying, because from the very beginning, I mean, if you see this strong alliance, politicians uh, advising experts with conflicts of interest and then industry, etc., yeah, there is only one force that can handle this, and this is really force of the people. And that is why I'm saying it's our duty, experts, and I, I'm maybe not doing the best job because my topic is complex and I don't always succeed in conveying a, a, a transparent or a clear-cut message, but it's our duty of the experts not to discuss that much amongst each other, okay? We have small uh, differences, maybe all that is nice, but it's essentially to inform people and to make, to make key concerns accessible for them so that they can at least make uh, you know, an informed decision about what they do, what they do for their, their children, etc. And that is so important because if people are not going to react, this is just going to continue to the bitter end. I mean, it's, um, yeah. Absolutely. So that is very true, very true what you're saying, Rob. Yeah. Well, Geert, um, thank you so much for what you've been doing. You know, it is incredibly important that, that um, resilience of those who have been outspoken and have dealt with the, the personal attacks. I mean, you, you should look, um, you should be quite grateful. If they're attacking you personally, it means they can't attack the science. Um, it's that that trick is as old as the, the world itself. And luckily enough, uh, you know, uh, Rob, there is uh, one must say uh, so many nice people like you and others, you know, who support us, who give us a voice and, uh, you know, who, who, who still think it's it's so important to have the discussion and, uh, you know, to have people, you know, reflecting on this. And, and so I, I I'm receiving a lot of support, of course, and uh, but I'm very grateful to you and others who also give us a voice through, you know, the platforms, at, uh, et cetera. And uh, I, try, I try to be as scientific as I can. And it always helps, of course, is the interviewer then has uh, himself or herself a scientific background. So that's really great and very, Absolutely. very helpful. Thank you. Well, Geert, let's see where we are come the autumn. Um, I, I think that's when, you know, all the models, everything is suggesting things are going to really heat up at that point. Um, and I think it may be another um, period when the mass public at large starts to wake up to um, the problems that, that, that we're in and, um, and find better solutions. So thank you for everything you're doing. It's been fantastic to talk to you again. Well, thank you so much, uh, Rob, for having me. Uh, much appreciated. Thanks. Thanks.